Welcome to the Shine Within Podcast. I'm your host, Gina Kunarian, and I am so grateful that you are here. I'm a wife, mother of three boys, certified massage therapist, and an alcohol-free sobriety coach who helps driven women break through their alcohol dependency without the traditional 12-step program. Each week, I will bring you inspiring guests with focus on mindset, health, and spirituality, providing you the tips and tools to help you create unshakable confidence, clarity, and energy so you can unleash your creative potential and live the life of your dreams alcohol-free. So tune in for some fun, and if you are ready to shine, welcome. Hello, lovely listeners. If you're finding value in what you're hearing today, make sure to head over to the show notes. Not only will you find more details on today's topic, but you'll also get an exclusive invitation to join my free Facebook group, Awakened Souls. This community is perfect for women who are either super curious or currently journeying through recovery. Being part of Awakened Souls offers a supportive environment where you can connect with like-minded women, all working towards an alcohol-free lifestyle. Plus... There are special free gifts waiting inside the show notes, (laughs) curated specifically to empower and assist you on your journey. And if you're loving the content, I'd be so grateful if you take a moment to rate this podcast. Your feedback helps me continue bringing you the conversations and insights you love. Let's keep the momentum going. And remember, you are not alone on this journey. I am here to help you every step of the way. Today we're about to embark on a voyage deep into the heart of ancient wisdom and its place in our modern world. We have a special guest who has devoted her life to the teachings of Ayurveda and the therapeutic power of yoga. Together, we'll explore the profound connections between our body, mind, and spirit, discuss the mysteries of digestive health, and delve into the transformative realms of mindfulness. So whether you're sipping your morning tea, driving to work, or just taking a moment for yourself, settle in as we uncover pathways to well-being in this fast-paced age. Let's begin. Welcome back to the Shine Within podcast. I have here Deborah Charns. In 2011, she had made and transformed the decision to step away from her intense role as an international corporate marketing communication strategist. She channeled her energy, once devoted to the corporate realm, towards fostering positive change within herself and others. Committing to a journey of continuous growth and knowledge sharing, Deborah has penned over 500 articles focus on mind, body, wellness, and lifestyle. By 2021, she added another feature to her cap by becoming a contributing writer to or for AARP's The Athol. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Deborah. It's so nice to meet you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So if you can just share with us your inspiration behind your journey from being in the boxing ring to finding solace in the ashram. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say that I worked the corporate world forever and I felt I had to, because, you know, I needed a paycheck. I needed the health insurance. I felt it was my responsibility. You know, I was always the responsible person. I had um, a child that I was raising but I never felt comfortable about the work that I was doing. I loved the work itself. So I was a marketing, a bilingual marketing communication specialist. I worked all over the U- US and Latin America and I loved 
the work, but I didn't feel good about the products and services I was selling. I was pushing things that I didn't believe in and that I didn't take or that I didn't buy. But I had a fun time and I would always rationalize it. Of course, I needed the paycheck and I, because of the communications background that I was in, we always did a lot of community outreach and community education. So I did a lot, for example, um, teaching people um, about healthcare, which sometimes is good and sometimes it's not, depending on what you're trying to teach them. Um, so anyway, I finally decided when my daughter was in grad school and she had a job, which meant that she had insurance and a little bit of money. And, you know, she was pretty much on her own. That was when I decided, you know, I'm just going to chuck it all and I'm going to do what feels best for me. So I took the same career path that I had had, but I decided to open up my own business, the right W-R-I-T-E counsel as an illegal counsel. And I took on only clients and services that I felt I aligned with. And most of them ended up being nonprofits that I felt good about. They didn't pay me that much, but I felt good about it. So that was how I transferred out of the corporate world. And I do want to say my experience in the boxing ring was not within the ring, but outside of the ring. I... I would say that I've been a pacifist my entire life. I was raised a pacifist. And I thought that boxing was brutal, you know? I mean, the fact that you cheer over someone getting knocked out, I mean, that what is wrong with us? I mean, I just I just could not understand that. However, I will say that in the marketing world, on behalf of one of my clients that was a liquor company, which I don't drink. <laughs> and uh, we promoted boxing all over the United States and televised boxing um, matches. And I have to say that being ringside and getting to meet the, the, the boxers, the trainers, the, the promoters, it was very exciting. Um, but the last chapter in my book is about a friend of mine who was in the boxing ring and she was a champ but even the champs get hit too many times and as a result she has permanent brain injuries, traumatic brain injuries, and many other problems that resulted from being in the ring. So that's the boxing side. And to talk about the ashram, I could go on forever. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing. You know, I remember my first experience with, I wouldn't say boxing. It was the, was it the MMA fighting in, in the ring? Oh my goodness. So I was 12 years old and I was at home, but I had grown up with brothers. And I remember one time my mom was ordered pay-per-view and she was like, oh, let's go ahead and watch this. You know, it was like the very first one. This was in like 1994, 95, something like that. But anyway, and this isn't boxing. They were just like 
grabbing each other and punching and beating. I was terrified. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. My mom was terrified. I was terrified. My brothers, not so terrified. They loved every single part of it. They were a lot older than I than I am. Uh, so yes, I can I can understand what the whole boxing thing and what it can do. And you know, like you had mentioned before, sometimes we do really take a toll and a big hit. Now, your book is mostly about the mind and body. Is there any specific chapters that is your favorite that you like to talk about? I know the last one you mentioned, but any That's others? That's kind of like saying, which is the favorite of your children? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> of course, they're all my favorites. And in actuality, my book, each chapter is based on life lessons from a different one of my 12 gurus around the world. I will say that one reader told me when she got to the last chapter that featured the female boxer that she cried, but they were happy tears and they were tears of release and of cleansing her, her hurt and what she had gone through. And that chapter actually is all based on gratitude. And I actually was meeting yesterday, last night, with a woman who is handicapped um, because of many different diseases. And she's had 15 different operations. You know, she's had one after another, after another, after another issues that she has gone through. And she was saying she she asked recently, God, why didn't you take me when she was, you know, in the ICU for a month? And she came out realizing it was because she had more time to spend. She had more time she needed to spend with her children and her grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And I talked to her a little bit about gratitude practice and she has that and no matter what we're going through we can always find something to be grateful for you know even if it's waking up and breathing waking up and if you can see like right now I'm looking out a window and I see beautiful trees and those make me happy and so the concept of gratitude, it's not saying, hey, thanks, I won the lottery. <laughs> but it's finding deeper things that can make you happy every single day. Yes, because I think we look, we tend to look on the outside for us to be happy. Like you said, winning the lottery, new, you know, consumerism, purchasing things that will try to make us happy, but we really are not those don't make us happy. We're still never satisfied. Is there any particular wellness wellness practices that you teach that actually have helped many, many others and have discovered what they are more grateful of in their lives? I hope so. <laughs> I, um, I mentioned in my book, From the Boxing Ring to the Ashram, that as part of a gratitude practice that I take to my group yoga classes and to my privates, I have made gratitude cards. And I used to, for the entire month of November and December, 
give one card to each person or let them pick a card. And they were quotes from different people like Maya Angelou and also people from hundreds of years ago. You know, like I might not pronounce the name right, Descartes. But so again, people throughout time who whose names people should know. And one of them, and I don't remember who it was by, it was something just simple about appreciating a flower, mm-hmm. which is kind of, again, like what I say when I look outside and I appreciate my trees. Um, so there are so many different ways that you can have an ongoing gratitude practice. It should be every day. And what I always say is, I do not like the holiday of Thanksgiving for many reasons. I am against the holiday for many reasons, but I believe everyone should have a daily Thanksgiving practice. And another way that I hopefully have shared the concept of gratitude aside from my book, and that was the reason why I wrote the book because I wanted to share my learnings with more people, But I have been doing for many years a workshop. All my workshops are therapeutic because I'm a yoga therapist. And one of my favorite workshops, it's called First Love Yourself. Mm -hmm. And in it, I do a lot of readings, which are introspective. And one of the exercises that I do sometimes, because I, everything, every session is always different. But one thing that I like to do is I have people focus on the negative chatter in their mind, usually that they were told when they were a child. You know, you are not good enough. You can't sing. You're, I was told I was uncoordinated. You know, so many different things that we have been told that we believe, even if it's not true. I'm a, I'm highly coordinated, I think. <laughs> yeah. I grew up thinking I was not coordinated because teachers told me I was uncoordinated. Anyway, what I share in my first Love Yourself workshop is I try to have people identify that negative, um, the negative idea that is constantly in their mind even if it's from their childhood, and it usually is. And then I have them rewrite that. Mm-hmm. And that, um, and that, that can be extremely powerful. Absolutely. And you reminded me, you know, with these schools that we send our children off to that I was in myself, these public schools, it's like the teacher has something going on with themselves, right? And then they're trying, they're projecting whatever is going on with them to the students. And then the students, you know, either shun away or just kind of like will go against what the teacher is saying. And then then it's this then it's the student's problem. But really, I think the teacher needs to start loving themselves first. And once they have that self-love, then they can emulate that towards, you know, all the other students there. And then I think that. By people loving themselves, I think I truly think that everyone else around them will start loving themselves because they're demonstrating the love <laughs> that they have within. So thank you for sharing that because it is very important that people start to really start trusting themselves. And I've had that too, where I hated myself. I thought I was ugly. I thought I was fat. I had all these negative things because the media and society was telling me 
hey, you are supposed to look like this, supermodel, six feet tall, or hey, you're supposed to be this athletic, you know, in the in the Olympics sometimes, you know, you know, I praise the ones that can do that. Yes, I'm not there, but it does take practice. But I felt like I had to be at a certain standard. And then that just tore me apart. But then once I really discovered no, get all of this chitter chatter out of my head start really breathing into everything and start meditating on really what I want, my goals, and just really knowing that it's possible. You can actually obtain your goals, no problem. It's just you have to believe in yourself first. If there's anything you should start believing in, it should be yourself first, <laughs> I feel. I can so identify with that. And it reminds me, uh, it's a trigger. <laughs> when I was a little kid, I don't know, maybe eight years old, that's not that little, but somebody, some boy, and you know how boys can be mean sometimes. And he called me funny face. Well, from then on, I thought something is wrong with my face. And then when I was maybe about 12, I was always tall and big. And I was always, I was never a thin one. I was always, you know, chunky. And I always saw myself as being the tallest and the largest girth-wise. I mean, I wasn't obese, but I just always felt I was large. And I will never forget once I went to, um, I, I accompanied my dad to his work. And one of the women said something about how, oh, you're built just like your father. You're and, and my father was like a football player kind of guy. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, we're taught to believe the Barbie, you know, um, Barbie is what women are supposed to be. And I felt, you know, I'm not supposed to have a football player body. And again, that stayed with me forever. And I also, as a result, I've always, all my, again, most of my life until, until I was about, well, pretty much until I became a yoga teacher and I've practiced yoga all my life, but until I became a yoga teacher, which required much more discipline, I was always overweight. And so I, I was, I mean, I was always overweight, but, um, I was, I was, but anyway, I realized even today, even though I am at the right weight, I still have body dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. It does do a lot of damage. The words are very powerful. And the same thing with me, like my dad, you know, my mom's petite, she's tiny, she's like five, two and very small framed, but like my dad more like would be considered big boned. <laughs> Right? That's what I always got. I'm big boned. I'm big boned, you know, and, but the more we start saying that to ourselves, the more we start believing it. And then we just take on, on that. I mean, I want to go and talk a little bit about your 12 gurus and the teachings. Um, how have the teaching and pearls of wisdom from these 12 gurus personally impacted your life? Again, I could go on forever, but I'm going to pick one chapter and talk about it that is related to body size. And it's actually related to every single thing we do in terms of our physical and emotional well-being. And I have been leading weight management therapeutic workshops for many years. And very similar to the weight management workshops that I lead are digestive health workshops, which I call gutsy yoga. And then I do another one for diabetes because I am insulin resistant. 
and that is called the sugar drop. And the reason why I mentioned all three of those together is because I was trained in India in Ayurveda, mm -hmm. which is the life science from India. I am not an Ayurvedic doctor. I consult with my Ayurvedic doctor who I've been seeing for almost 10 years, and I consider him my primary doctor. And in fact, just before we got on, I made bliss balls that were my Ayurvedic doctor's recipe because I have a recipe book from him. But anyway, yes. the guru that I feature in one of my chapters was my Ayurvedic doctor teacher in India. And the concept is that everything is ruled by our gut. And again, this is an ancient belief from Ayurveda. If we do not have proper digestion, we will not have proper blood sugar. We will not have proper weight. But also, they even say things such as Parkinson's or, or again, everything they say is related to digestion. I also lead therapeutic workshops in bone health. And there is a huge correlation between digestion or lack of digestion and osteoporosis. So for example, people with celiac and or Crohn's, I can't remember which one, but almost everyone with one of those will have bone density issues because they are not able to um, absorb the nutrients. And anyway, the bottom line is from an Ayurvedic standpoint, everything begins with what is called the digestive fire. And we have to have a strong digestive fire for well-being, again, physically and mentally. And what's, I think, so fascinating is, again, this concept is from you know, thousands of years ago. And now, one of the people that I quote in my book is from University of Southern California. He's a gastroenterologist and he talks about the gut microbiome. And the entire concept of the gut microbiome is that your gut regulates all of your health. Again, including what's up here and what's going on in your emotions. And so I think that's really important. I One of the reasons why I wrote the book and one of the reasons why I became a yoga teacher and then a yoga therapist is because from the time I was very young, I was diagnosed with a digestive disorder. I will have the digestive disorder all my life, but it doesn't mean that it has to bother me. And of course, I've never taken any drugs for it. One of the things that I do for it, which I did first thing this morning, aside from you know my meditation and my breath work, but I, I drank homemade lemon ginger tea, which is really good for digestion. Um, another reason why I wrote the book and why I got into yoga meditation breath work when I was very young is another chapter, and it's all about back pain. Mm. One in five American adults suffers from chronic pain. 
And the vast majority of people with chronic pain have the pain in their back. Mm -hmm. And again, when I was an adolescent, I was diagnosed. I had chronic severe back pain. And I was diagnosed with a musculoskeletal abnormality, you know, which wasn't like, you know, everybody's, everybody's built differently, right? It's just like, you know, if one shoulder is higher than another or whatever. So I had an abnormality, which is totally fine. And fortunately, my orthopedic surgeon told me to, um, to manage it. I needed to strengthen the core, which is a main concept we have to alleviate back pain. You have to strengthen the core. Mm-hmm. Along yeah. with other things. Yes, totally. It reminded me because um, like I, I mentioned to you earlier that in my recovery, I didn't want to take Boost Bar, Prozac, Trazodone, uh, all these medications that was given to me to help me with my recovery. Uh, to be honest, I don't think it did anything. It just made my my symptoms worse, I feel. Um, I mean, everybody's body is different. You know, this is just my experience. And it wasn't until I went ahead and found a mindset coach who also was a trainer and focus a lot on yoga, more so now she's doing yoga. This was in 2017, where I first discovered her from a friend. And really, yoga, she, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not that flexible. <laughs> I'm still getting, I used to do a lot of like a cardio kickboxing and all that stuff. That was like more of my like activity. But just recent in recent years, I've now am starting to do more of the yoga practices that she has created. And I really find that it's not just about the movement or the exercise. It really helps me get into my consciousness. Like I, my consciousness, like, it, I mean, our consciousness are just incredible, by the way. Like I get goosebumps talking about it because it is just can go from, it's like a, we have a portal. We can go from reality to the spiritual realm in an instant like that, just by us doing like practices of yoga, deep breathing and meditation. And so these are things that I've actually am discovering more and more about of the mind and the body and the connection between them. And yes, I agree with you when it comes to the stomach. I used to have a lot of anxiety from like childhood trauma when I was little. And I always wondered why am I getting so sick and nauseous and this is because it was like anxiety, literally. And it, they tried to diagnose me with IBS and it wasn't IBS. It was literally me going through that trauma and it was holding it all in here. So I had created, or not created, I didn't create anything. <laughs> my body was hurting um, in my lower where my sacrum is. And so, and I've been in many car accidents and I probably can understand why from certain energies that I was probably carrying. And none of them were my fault though, but still the pain that I was having in my lower back and I still have to this day, but I'm able to subside those by doing like regular exercise and doing that yoga. It really helps me elongate my muscles and I just feel better mentally. And I think when I'm feeling better mentally, my body is automatically going to feel good. So I love yoga. <laughs> I'm, I'm a new at it, but you know, I, I love it. <laughs> it helps. One of the other chapters in my book, features a guru of mine who I, of course, I, of course, I think all of my gurus are the top in their field or whatever, but this man has been researching yoga and the brain for about 30 years. And he's affiliated with Harvard Medical School. And he is a PhD neuroscientist, something, something that has to do with the brain, <laughs> you know, I don't know. 
Um, I don't, I have a hard time understanding the brain because it is so complex, but he has so many research findings about how yoga, and when he talks about yoga, he always, and this is something that always bothers me in the Western world, we tend to think of yoga as the physical practice, but he, when he refers to yoga, it is always yoga, meditation, breath work, and relaxation. And again, every yoga class should have those components. And he's done so much research about the positive impact on the brain of yoga and people with PTSD or people with anxiety or depression. And, you know, it's um, yoga does rewire the brain. You know, we tend to think, okay, I was born with this brain, but hey, that's obviously not true because we can pour so much knowledge and memorize so many things in our brain, the way we learn languages, and of course, all of our emotions, you know, different sides of the brain, the way we view colors and, and shapes, our brain does change, you know, and the fact, again, I, I studied linguistics, and so I'm, I'm really into language acquisition. I would like to think that maybe that makes it easier for me to modify my brain. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but I wanted to also circle back on what you were talking about with anxiety and whatever is going on with the emotions. You know, again, I was diagnosed when I was very young with a digestive disorder, which is absolutely, without a doubt, stress aggravated. So again, I will have this um, issue my entire life, but for the most part, I'm always feeling fine. The last time I had a severe flare-up, it was, um, I don't even remember how many years ago it was, let's say 15 years ago or more, but it was the day of my father's burial. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> outwardly, I was the one managing everything. I was the one coordinating with the funeral home and coordinating with the um, cemetery and of course going through all his things. So I... Outwardly, I've always been so chill. My sister calls me Miss Namaste. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> and I call her something nasty. No, <laughs> no, but um, but I'm I'm always you know like this where she's always you know um, she's much more emotional. But it's not good that I'm always like this because. I may not express my emotions. I may feel that I don't have them, but inside my gut will respond. So again, the day of my father's funeral, maybe I didn't even cry, you know, because I've, I've always tried to be a superwoman. And, you know, um, I've always tried to be like my dad, the big, strong Superman, but, but it was in a woman's body. <laughs> um, <laughs> But again, that was the last time, you know, that I had a flare up, you know, and how, you know, it's so clear how the brain and the body are connected. 
Yeah. And you're so right. I remember when my uncle passed away, this is on my dad's side of the family and my cousin, you know, she was the one coordinating everything. And that, that was her father. Um, and she said she didn't have any time to cry because she was just so busy and occupied with setting up everything and making sure everything you know, everyone was taken care of during after the service. And because they, of course, they had a little celebration of, of life. And but she was so occupied. She's like, I didn't even have time to grieve. And then finally, the week that she grieved, everything came out. But she had that tense feeling in her stomach. I remember her mentioning that, like in her stomach, she wasn't feeling good. Well, that's that's why, because all of that tension was built up in there. And she didn't have that time to grieve until a little bit later on um, after, I think even after a week after his uh, funeral service so I can completely understand that it's 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 difficult it definitely is now I wanted to ask you a question um as we were talking about medication and I was sharing with you that I was I took a lot of medication I don't take any medication now I just take supplements now <laughs> um but what do you believe is the reason that modern society tends to gravitate towards like pills and quick fixes rather than addressing the root causes I should say of of alignments. I agree with you a hundred percent. And you basically answered the question. <laughs> um, from an Ayurvedic and traditional Chinese medical medicine perspective, and I've studied both traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. Again, I am not a doctor, but I incorporate many different aspects of both as a yoga therapist. And I always tell people as a yoga therapist, it's often more about therapy than yoga, because a lot of times we may not do anything physical, but I'm trained in acupressure and, and I'm trained, I, I know a lot about the meridians and all that. And what both traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda have in common is it's about going to the root problem, identifying the root problem and finding the balance to prevent for well-being. So we have to have balance from well-being and from an Eastern perspective, and again, both Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine, we have the elements, you know, the five elements. And those elements have to be in balance. And there are many different layers of elements and the balance, because in Ayurveda, it's also very much about um, I'll just mention the word guna, which is um, food, different food has different gunas. So you want to eat a sattvic diet. In one of the chapters of my book, it's all about a sattvic diet. And another chapter of my book is about a sattvic lifestyle. Sattvic means pure and it means um, neutral and balanced as opposed to the other gunas are um, kind of, let's just say like caffeine is one type. It's called, it's considered rajasic. The other kind like alcohol. So in other words, you know, one kind of rattles you and then the other one depresses you. And all foods have those different traits. And so from a sattvic diet or a sattvic lifestyle, we are supposed to do things that are neutral and calming and pure. And I'm sorry, but I believe most medications are not sattvic because they're doing something to us. We all know that any medication you do, 
somehow alters you. I remember once I had toe fungus and I remember going to the doctor and the doctor said, you know what? The, the medicine that you need to get rid of it, it's gonna ruin your kidneys. And I just used tea tree oil instead, you know, and I treated it with tea tree oil. But my point is that traditional meds are too altering and they're not gonna keep us balanced. I'm 65 years old and I take, um, and I, I, aside from my two childhood diagnoses, I am also insulin resistant and I take zero meds. Oh. I manage everything through an Ayurvedic lifestyle. And again, it's about, um, it does have to do with diet, but it's also what time do you go to bed and when do you go to bed and what do you do? And I don't take, again, I take no medicine, but I also take no other kinds of drugs such as alcohol. And, you know, even again, even coffee is considered a drug from an Ayurvedic perspective. So long story short is drugs are gonna, some drugs of course are necessary. I'm not, I would never tell somebody not to take drugs when they're, when they're necessary. But when my daughter was born, um, 35 years ago, it was in South America and it was, it had to be a C-section. I went to an acupuncturist to avoid the C-section. And <laughs> so I was, I've always been interested in integrative health. And, um, anyway, it was a C-section, which today in today's age, if I had gone to a birthing center, a midwife, I'm sure the C-section would not have been necessary mm -hmm. but where I was living. You know, hey, that was what they did. But the next morning, you know, because it was like 10 o'clock at night when she was born. And of course, I was like out of it, even though I wasn't given total anesthesia. It was just, you know, the, the spinal. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I was out of it because I, I've always been drug free. So, you know, even if I back in the day when I was in high school, college, sorry, when I was in college, if I would drink a beer, I would feel out of it. Anyway, um, so in the morning when I wake up in the hospital, the nurse comes by with all these different pills. What are these? Painkiller. I don't need a painkiller. Um, you know, what do I need a painkiller for? I would rather feel the pain and know what's going on. You know, it's not like it's going to impede anything I can deal with pain and then she had you know all these other things I'm like I don't need those but it's anyway I'm sorry I didn't get back to your your oh that's okay what you were saying most people want a quick fix and when I studied Ayurveda in India my doctor who is featured in my book he said most people want a quick fix Ayurveda you have to do it always. You have to always be conscious mm -hmm. of what you're doing. And again, as a diabetic, it kills me when I see people who are giving themselves insulin, you know, they're, they're having to shoot themselves up with insulin a couple times a day, and then they eat all sorts of junk mm. and they are not physically active. 
But again, they prefer to just give themselves a shot of insulin. Right. And you remind me because I had gestational diabetes with my second son. And, you know, it was the last month that they said, okay, you have gestational diabetes. And I remember being monitored throughout that month constantly. And originally they were going to go ahead and induce me and have him be born earlier because of the gestational diabetes. And so what happened is that they had inserted that thing and then I was dilated. And when I was dilated, I thought then my water broke, but no, the nurse came and she opened, she opened up the blanket like this. She was like, freaked out. It was all blood. I was hemorrhaging. My body was reacting to whatever they were inserting in me. And so unfortunately, um, someone else was in the C-section, having the baby in the C-section room. It was like the only room available and baby was losing oxygen and blood. I was hemorrhaging. So both of us, our lives were at risk. And I was just thinking about like, wow, what if I didn't even, what if I was just supposed to be natural, like without knowing that he had gestational, I had gestational diabetes, would they have just had me deliver naturally? Or if they were to insert that in me, that's causing both of our, both of our lives to be at risk. Well, what wound up happening is that they put me under, then I had the C-section and he was not uh, responding, uh, no oxygen. He had hypoxia. And so he poor little baby was in uh, the NICU for a long time. And luckily miracle, praise God. Um, he he was fine and he's fine to this day he's gonna be eight next week actually so i'm i'm so against these drugs i don't know what how my body is going to respond and so that's why i haven't had babies since i was like oh no <laughs> i'm terrified now and so i don't know i just thought i'd share that with you because we're talking about c-section and babies and medication but at the same time it's natural for us to trust the medical practitioner studied so much and we we know they're doing what they think is in our best interest and of course they know so much more than what we know but my mom used to always say she used to always say you don't have to be a cow to know what milk is or something (laughs) like that meaning she knew enough about herself to know what was right for her health. Right. And this goes back to trusting ourselves too. Like we we know our bodies best. We should anyway. And then, you know, and then medicine is important. Like say we break a bone or something and we need that medicine right away. I don't know. I'm not there yet where I can. <laughs> well, luckily I haven't broken any bones. So I don't really know what it feels like. But people who have shared stories with me, it's like, oh, painful and I can understand medication in that sense where it's like okay emergency but just overall like having to take something it's more like we live in a disease management system here instead of a healthcare system I feel like it's just about money and I don't like that I want it to be where it's like okay no we can we are so capable of healing ourselves it's just a practice and you know like you said a nighttime routine where we don't even watch tv at night unplug why do you need that crap in your head anyway before you go to bed (laughs) you know so things like that and then waking up and then having a morning routine gratitude you know stretching yoga practice breathing just sets that sets up your day and I so uh, I swear I can go on this conversation forever as well (laughs) 
<laughs> but I wanted to go ahead and ask you um, another thing. Uh, what's one piece of advice or a simple practice from your book that our listeners can start with today to make a positive change in their own well-being? Well, first of all, as a yoga therapist, I was trained that we have to meet people where they are, which means that everyone is different. And what might be right for you it may not be right for the person next door. And that's one of the reasons why in my book, the 12 chapters, each chapter gives five easy tips and a give it a try section. And everything is meant to be done in 10 minutes a day or less to improve your emotional or physical well-being. And then I also have a 40-day tracker where you can pick and choose. Maybe you start with chapter six in terms of a practice, or maybe, and then maybe you continue with chapter nine. So it has to be what you feel you need today. And then 40 days later, what do you need? Maybe you need to continue or maybe you need something completely different. I obviously do all of them. But one of the things that was the hardest for me to do, um, you were talking about disconnecting and, you know, you were talking about, um, I, I got rid of all my televisions 15 years ago, but I still, you know, confess that I'm addicted to my cell phone because it's everything for me. And one of the chapters in my book, uh, it's actually features a U.S. Air Force rabbi chaplain. And she talks about the concept of Sabbath and for everyone to practice some kind of a Sabbath, whether it be a digital disconnect or whatever. But taking one day a week for more introspection and for gratitude and for love and for being close with your family and anyway, I was talking about, you know, we have to meet people where they are. Well, my Ayurvedic doctor many years ago told me you need to disconnect once a week. And I was like, it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you on that. It's hard. Sorry, you know, I believe you. I love everything you say, <laughs> but this one's just not for me. And then I don't remember how many years ago I began the practice and I think it's very important. And so again, that's why I'm saying it has to be when you're ready for each practice. But the, the simplest of all would be mindfulness. And that's chapter one. And the idea, I'm using the word mindfulness versus meditation because too often people associate the word meditation with you know, it's just like, I'm going to be quiet for an hour sitting cross-legged on a cushion. And that's great. You can do that. But there's so many other ways that you can be mindful and meditate. And the concept of mindfulness in chapter one is it should be from the time you wake up until you go to bed. You know, it should be mindful when you are eating. It should be mindful of, of, of the clothes you're wearing and how it feels on your body. You should be mindful of, of the, the wind or of the fan that's blowing and the sun on your skin. Simple things like that are mindfulness 
techniques that you can do all the time. And then there are so many other kinds of mindfulness and meditation practices. Um, simple breath work. And again, what it as the concept with my book, it's finding what is right for you. And I like to ask my students that a lot in terms of what is meditative for you. I personally find reading to be very meditative. I also like coloring books. And then I also do a lot of, you know, walks and I do japa beads and I do chanting. So I have so many different styles. Other people that I know have said crocheting or needlepoint. There are so many different ways that you can be mindful. And it's all about what feeds your soul. But one thing that works for one person may not work for the other. So you really have to really trust yourself and say, okay, what do I love doing? What makes me happy? And one of the things that I used to do was a coloring book. It was those fractals, those geometric patterns and shapes. And I would just color and play some classical music in the background. It could be whatever type of music that any individual would, would want to hear. Mine was always like classical and I would <laughs> color those in. But I found it, found it so soothing, so relaxing, so therapeutic. And my whole state of mind was just so much different than prior to when I was coloring. So I, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing those tips because I'm I'm sure our audience is going to go ahead and take one of those and try them at home someday. <laughs> no, I just want to mention, yeah. you know, one that is like, you know, again, how everybody is different. When I worked the corporate world, you know, working seven days a week, 80 hours a week, one of my colleagues who had two children, you know, she was working just as crazy as I was. And she told me that what was therapeutic for her was cooking and baking. She ended up opening up a side baking business where she would make um, cakes like wedding cakes oh, wow. to me I'd be like oh my god this is gonna stress me out I can't cook worth a darn you know <laughs> but that was what she found wow it was relaxing for her Yes. And I can see where she's coming from. Like I hated baking. I hated cooking because I didn't know how to, but during um, COVID when we were stuck at home, that really gave me the opportunity to explore my gifts and what I actually enjoyed. And one of them was actually cooking. <laughs> now I love cooking. I'm cooking all the time, <laughs> new recipes. I'm just like, oh, I get excited. And so I can, <laughs> I can see where it's therapeutic, but I can also then see on the other side where it could be stressful because sometimes I'd be like, oh, it didn't come out right. My bun cake, when I turned it over, it flopped and made a mess. But then I recreated something else with that and it still tastes just as delicious. But thank you so much for coming on my show today. Where can the audience follow you, find your book, find your website? I'm pretty much everywhere. Most of my, most of the places where you can find me are my name, Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Charns, C-H-A-R-N-E-S. I have a YouTube channel with my name. I have Instagram with my name, Twitter with my name. Um, Facebook, it's the right, W-R-I-T-E, council, and the namaste, as in namaste, y'all, council. And then my website is also debracharns.com. 
Uh, so again, it's for the most part, it's my name. And I'm always, again, I confess already, I'm on my phone too much. So, um, but I don't want to say don't follow me. So follow me because I am on. <laughs> yes. And one thing that I have done too is in, in the morning time, I said, okay, forget the phone. I'm going to go ahead and just say what I'm grateful for and then get ready. And then after I'm ready, then I'll go on my phone unless I'm listening to a podcast, but, but I won't check any messages because I like to listen to podcasts when I'm getting ready because it just kind of uplifts me and gets me going for the day. <laughs> so that's one practice I have done, but thank you again. And I'm looking forward to your book. Good. Well, it's been such a joy talking to you and I feel we have so much in common. Absolutely. Thank you so much. To my cherished listeners, from the very depths of my heart, thank you. Every single one of you who've showered me with those warm five-star reviews, your kindness shines so brightly. And if you haven't yet, know that your voice and support always matter. Your unwavering love has lifted us onto Feedspot's esteemed list of best women's sobriety podcasts, and it truly warms my heart. With immense love and care, I've created something for you as well. Introducing the Overcoming Challenges mini course, crafted especially with the intention to guide and support you through life's varied phases, because we all deserve gentle guidance as we navigate life's tides. Furthermore, I have two heartfelt gifts for our listener family. One is a seven-day challenge, a tender beginning for those curious about sobriety, and the other, a personal sharing from my journey, six-step blueprint to an alcohol-free life. This encapsulates the loving steps I took, I embraced beyond AA and the traditional 12 steps that have nurtured my own sobriety journey. To embrace these tokens of gratitude and love, simply text GIFT, that's G-I-F-T, to 1-855-649-6196. Again, that's G-I-F-T at 1-855-649-6196. With all my love and deepest gratitude, I cherish each and every one of you.